1: It's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe whitetail deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I am
2: John Tito, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully everyone's doing well. I am home and I'm happy to be home. I was on the road this, uh, this past week a few times. I worked Saturday and it was hot. It was only 82 degrees in the woods. And uh, people were like, well, you're in the woods. I said, well, not really, cause it was all dead ash. And so I was basically in a shrubland area uh, with dead trees, which is also dangerous. And it was funny, you know, I'm looking across the landscape and I'm thinking about a few things. One, I'm thinking about the volume of grapevine in the area and the advantage it's gotten now from all the dead ash. And you could see every single ash tree that's been dead over the past three to four years, they've got this vine twirling up the top and basically almost looks like a live tree because the volume of uh, grape that's in that tree, and they're obviously producing fruit at this time of year. In addition to that, I also noticed the trees that were alive didn't have the same volume of grape on it. So it's interesting to think about plant life. And part of thinking about plant life is how it survives. You know, there's adaptive behaviors in plants, whether it produces phenols or toxins, what have you, or it takes advantage of the plant life that maybe, you know, it could, it could take over. And one of the strategies, and and I use this on my own property, I try to get rid of invasive plants the best I can, but sometimes I just can't either time or herbicide or whatever the case may be. But one of the strategies is using native plants to fight non-native plants and grapevines a good example of that. And it takes over. And I use it to branch over, we'll say, uh, some of the species like buckthorn, for example, creating a great canopy and really kind of like this short you know, I would say understory tree that could be very you know beneficial to deer to provide that kind of that cooling thermal effect. So just an example there to consider, and something that just was apparent to me. I was just kind of thinking about plant relationships, you know, over the past couple of days, and you know what plants complement others, the, the the friend foe kind of relationship, and observe that. Take you know pay attention to that. The other thing I want to mention is there's a lot of native plants that kind of present themselves in the landscape nanaberry being one of them a highly browsed food source probably three to four weeks ago and the timing the seasonality of this is, is really important so thinking about some of those species and the benefit to you know your wildlife all right enough of that i've got my favorite guest back todd shippy empire land management it's been a bit for todd i think the last time him and i were on, we were talking fire but we might have had another podcast in between there i just can't remember but let me get him on here Hey, Todd, what's going on?
1: Uh, too much. What's going on, John? How are you? Good, Good. to hear your voice again.
2: Yeah, same. Uh, happy to have you back. It's been a bit. And funny, I was on a podcast a couple nights ago, not not my podcast, uh, another guy, and he said, I love your podcast. It's great. He's like, that Todd Shippy guy, you guys did this one on fire, and uh, it's my absolute f- uh, favorite podcast Uh, that I've listened to. He, you know, I'm diehard and he's got a great podcast himself. I I won't mention his name, but uh, I'll be on a podcast of his here in the next uh, week or so, but he absolutely loved uh, the fire podcast we did together.
1: So I wanted to let you know that. Well, thank you. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's good to hear positive feedback.
2: Yeah. We've been getting a lot of feedback. I think this podcast is kind of, I don't know. I feel like it's taken off to a point where we have so many listeners, way more listeners when we started. And, uh, it's kind of built a little bit of a brand recognition, you know, not just with my business, but everyone else that's participating. So I think people are looking forward kind of the weekly content. Yeah,
1: when I was in uh, Iowa, in my booth in Iowa this year, uh, a couple guys came up and said, Oh, I'm part of Lampers. You're on the, the podcast with Whitetail Landscapes and recognized just off the name. I thought that was kind of cool.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is cool. Um, so, you know, we, we don't really have an agenda. We're just going to shoot it today, which is good, because I want to catch up. What have you been working on the past couple of weeks? Anything particular? I know you've been busy. you got some personal things going on,
1: but you, you still, you're an active guy. So what, what's,
2: what's been up with you?
1: Oh, it's been crazy trying to keep up with everything. So we're in a drought here. And so as people know, when you're dealing with a drought, any little rain that you get, it blows up the weeds. But the seed that you just put down takes longer to crack and to come open. So you're constantly fighting weeds, um, mainly through mowing, and especially over switchgrass. It's so difficult to get switchgrass to grow. And I had an interesting thing happen to me with switchgrass this year. I had some areas that were tilled that I saved from, I tilled them up last fall. So this spring, I drilled in switchgrass in bare dirt, uh, treated with simazine. And then I also had the areas that I burned and then let green up sprayed and drilled switchgrass through the thatch interestingly enough with the lack of rain and the high high temperatures that we experienced i think the switchgrass in the dirt just cooked off it was so hot that the seeds i can find them and they're just they're they crumple i think they just cooked that it got so hot in the bare dirt or the sun shines on it and then in the thatch though it did okay when it finally did rain but it grew in the, in the weirdest places. It grew where it normally doesn't, in the shade of a fence line where normally plants won't grow as well. That's where it's coming up, bottom of the hill where the sun comes late in the day. And I think those were in, in those odd spots are where it's getting normal temperature and normal sunshine to make it grow in this extreme heat that we're experiencing this year. Now, the rest of it is starting to fill in, but I actually so many weeds came in and I found the little dead grass seed. Uh, switchgrass seed in the, the marks from my grain drill that I just went a couple of weeks ago and redrilled through that thatch. I just sprayed it and drilled through that thatch. Uh, it'll come up a little bit, but next year it's almost for me, it's getting to be switchgrass is a two year thing now. Even using RC Big Rock, where normally it'll get up to two, three feet its first year, sometimes even four. Nowadays, you put it in one year, and the last two years we haven't had any rain. You have to capture the snow in the winter time and then hope that the spring and then even in spring, April, it happened to me again this year, a couple of 90 degree days chained together. Well, that's normally where your window is that you can spray roundup over the, the cold, the cool season grasses, smoke those off and give your warm season grass a chance. You can't because after three 90 degree days, that those warm season grasses start to germ. They're starting to come up. They're starting to green. And if you spray them, you're going to be in deep trouble. So it's, an, it's interesting to try and adapt. So what do you do? Mow, mow, mow. Um, that's, that's your only other fallback position is just have to keep mowing it uh, and ultimately grow it into a nice patch with with some broad leaves and stuff. So been fighting with that. Um, but as you know, during a drought, you have to look at it is this the new normal? Are we always dry forever now? Or is this a window? And I think that intelligently you always have to look at it as it's a window. It's an opportunity. So then um, you get out in your marshes and that's where I make trails, lay geo grid down for paths to get to places that you normally can't make buck beds out in the swamps. So you can get equipment out in there uh, to make buck beds. There's uh two jobs that I have where it was like this maybe 10 years ago, and they put redneck blinds way back in the swamp, and then it, it flooded. You couldn't get anywhere near them, and, and they had them in the wrong spot. So we gotta bring them back out to the periphery. Now, these are people that were of the mindset from come, first-time property owners coming off a long history of hunting public land. And as you know, in public land, the deeper in you can get beyond where all the people are, you're going to land on deer, whoever goes the furthest. But when you have your private land and you set it up right, you don't need stands all the way into the middle. You want to stay back on the periphery and make your edges. And, and uh, well, you I don't have to tell you how to set up land, but so they have to have, it's a real paradigm shift for those people. So we have to get those blinds back out of there where they're actually pushing deer to the neighbor's property or going through the best part of their land and realize that you can hunt deer on normal patterns, not uh pressure deer. And it takes a while to teach them that.
2: Yeah, no, all good points and lots of good data there. I want to back you up on a couple things. First thing, um, and you mentioned the switchgrass, you're using RC big rock. Um, I'm just going to comment. I had a client apply a bunch of that this year. I think we did, uh, I want to say seven, eight acres. And I know the client do five acres of it. Drilled it late. Uh, one of the clients actually just put it in within the past three or four weeks. And uh, yep. I'm always worried about rooting time. Just, you know, we, it gets cold here quick. So they've got to have a t- chance to, you know, root. They did the prep like we had talked about. And it'll be interested to see what results they get. I tried RC Tecumseh on some of my higher kind of drier areas. And we had a drought period. And I went up there recently. I've not checked it, but I, I did see germination. I over-applied because I knew that I'd, you know, it'd be hard to root because it's a little stony up on top of a, a hillside. This is on my own personal property, uh, but it did it did root. We've had good conditions, you know. The one thing recently in the north, I, you know, I, I was working up in the, in the northern areas, you know, Vermont, New Hampshire, parts of New York. We've had a ton of flooding here, and so. You know, putting out later in the season, you would assume "Ah, we're not going to really, you know, deal with you know many issues other than drought. But having that texture on the ground, you know, assuming, you know, the plant itself has not germinated or not is really important. So that, you know, stubble, whatever you want to call it, I think is really critical, particularly on, you know, uh, any sloped areas, et cetera. So I just want to kind of throw yeah. that out. So I got two questions for you. How late would you go planning? Cause
1: you, you did, you just drilled it in. How late would you go planting yeah. switchgrass? Well, it stay in July. You can do it in July. Um, as a matter of fact, a client a couple of years ago, I was on, he had, he had a guy drill some in on, in July. And it was up pretty good right? I think I was there in August or September and you could see it. I mean, it was there. Um, and that was sandier soil. So, it, it, and I have a bunch over in, um, the Western part of state, I put in a bunch of our seed, Tecumseh, and it's just, we had zero rain and high temperatures and now there's manure on top of it, um, which isn't going to hurt, but I got a feeling that's just not going to come up until next, next spring is when I'll see it. If it didn't cook. That's the problem. So yeah. Because those seeds are so shallow, either broadcast or drilled, they're so shallow that they're susceptible to the. I mean, when you can't even walk barefoot across dirt or or put your hand down, and that's that's not good for a seed. That's you know basically baking it. So um, we'll see how that does. It's it's a lot of money to have in the ground just to have it cook off. But I don't know what else a guy can do. Um,
2: well, you mentioned something else it, that's kind of interesting to me, and I got some ideas. And I've been to, I've been, you know, for the past, probably five podcasts, I've said the same thing over and over again. I said, you know, think about water retention on your property. You know, I've been doing all these research projects here over the past three, four months, thinking about water retention on landscape, how to slow water down, right? Things that you and I have talked about in the past. And, you know, I I can think of specifically a property. I'd done some research. There's a a woman that I follow. Her name is Nicole Masters, very uh, smart, integrity soils, but I've taken some training from her And just learning about, you know, water retention, particularly in Montana. And she she just showed, you know, you've got a desert of land around, you know, these areas and basically developing a system for water catchment. Particularly in their areas, they get, you know, maybe eight to nine inches of water per year, but they have that water catchment off the basin of, uh, you know, from the mountainside. So they get basically water runoff and they retain that water runoff in key areas and they've created catchment ponds. And a smart thing to do. You can't do it in all areas, you know, that really don't have a good basin a water. Uh, on top of that, the snow load is, is something also to consider where they have, you know, a decent amount of snow load in, you know, some distant land. So it's just kind of thinking about all, all those things in the landscape. And you, you guys don't necessarily get the snow. I mean, you get snow, but you don't get the snow that we get here. So, you no. know, it's, you know, we'll get 100 inches a year. So. You know, it's 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 a lot of snow. So I right. want to. I, I had a question for you because you brought up something that that I'm not familiar with, or at least I've, I haven't thought this through. Is you brought up geofabric, and I know what geofabric is. If anybody who doesn't know, they use are for roadsides a lot of times. Actually, I'm working on mulching my yard, and I, I I put that down before I put my stone mulch down. But the geofabric, what are you using it for? You said trails or beds. Now, or- okay,
1: so. Yeah, so geofabric is different than geogrid. Okay. Um, you can Google, you can Google it. It's uh, DOT approved. Um, it's the new thing that they're using on almost all the roads on the big solar farms that they're building and stuff. Instead of digging down to virgin soil and then filling in with breaker rock, you can just lay this above the ground, put the gravel over the top of it, and it stops it from, from uh, migrating into the soil below, and it builds a stable thing. It comes in. The stuff I buy comes in. Three hundred foot rolls by thirteen feet wide. Okay, and I use that. So what I'll do is, so there's a wet area of canary grass that you can't get, you just can never get through. On a year like this, you mow it like fifteen feet wide, and then you lay the geogrid down. I can send you some videos of how I do it. I did, I did have it on my Instagram. My Instagram is on pause right now because uh, I just haven't had time to, to upload anything, nor I've had time to show the respect to other guys and like their stuff. So it's been on pause for quite a while. I haven't updated anything, but it is on there if you want to look back at how to spread geogrid. So then what anchors it is you let the grass grow up through it. So when the grass comes up through it, then I go over it with a roller and that that just lays it down and it weaves it right into the ground. So now, and I have, I saw on, on my Instagram where if I step off the geogrid, I literally fall up to my hip. And when you're on it, you're just on it. So then once the grass comes through and you roll it, you can, I mean, I've had clients where they drive dump trucks on it to dump. And now this Um, is when they're doing gravel when it's a higher thing, but so then you can put wood chips on. And when you put wood chips, you don't put cover the whole trail with chips, but parts of it to kind of, to anchor, like say you're in a marsh or a wet area that has the, uh, the ankle breakers, you know, the humps that are in the sedge humps, um, then I'll, I'll use some wood chips to kind of level that out. But it literally, John, this, this buys people, I mean, I've over the years, I mean, hundreds of acres of access. I mean, one client I have in the West, he accessed, for what it cost him putting a geogrid, he had access to 80 acres of his property that he literally couldn't get to because it ha- would have to go through water. And then during rut, it's the ice cracking and all that stuff. He couldn't get back there. So it gave him access to another 80 acres that he can hunt. Another client, I have 40 acres. Um, a job that I'm still working on right now that we're, we're finishing up, um, access to 30 acres. To, you know how like, basic plan of having a trail all the way around the outside of your property. Yeah. And a lot of times you can't make that trail all the way around because of a wicked marsh or, or some wet areas. Well, this allows that to happen.
2: This is great. I mean, this is this is something that you know. This application. So the height of the geogrid. How how tall is it? It's no.
1: It it just lays down like picture chicken wire. Oh, so it's just chicken wire. There's no depth to it. Okay. Huh. No, there. I mean, they do make it. They do make it where there's depth. They make like two and three inch deep for that you would put gravel inside. Yeah, of it gravel. That would hold yeah. it when they're building roads and stuff. But if you go the uh, the stuff that I use. Um, I'll give you the exact name of it. You can look it up here.
2: Is it tensar? Is it?
1: Yeah. Yep. Okay. It's uh, did you find it? I use the GBS X forty one biaxial geogrid. Okay.
2: All right. No, this is great advice. I mean, I, I, it's funny because I've never even thought about the application in that's that scenario. Um,
1: just best price is from uh geosynthetic systems in Waukesha, Wisconsin. <laughs> okay. They do, they do, they ship and they do a really good price. No, I've got uh, a phone call right now that i have to return i just came in late today of a guy wants to buy a roll of it for a job and i've got two guys waiting that just need rolls they're going to do it themselves and i thought i wait because last year i ordered a mile of it in a semi load well about a mile and a half of it and it's all (laughs) it's all laid out so i i have to restock here
2: well uh, I, i think it's really interesting um yeah, just a great, just another strategy for somebody trying to get access in areas, right? It kind of opens the
1: the floodgates a little bit to getting into particular areas. Um, Jim all right. Ward really, like I told Jim about it. He was all excited. One of his customer he had one of his customers actually call me for some, as a matter of fact.
2: Hmm. Oh, that's cool. I was just talking to Jim the other day, actually, just catching up with him. He's got, he, he just, he's so funny. He just had two guys call me about these interesting new concepts that I'm, I'm playing with. I was so crit, I was so critical of the guys calling me like, "You got to try this. This is the next greatest thing." And I'm I'm totally yeah. open to new ideas. And it's awesome, you know, this kind of network that we have. It's awesome to find people. Yep, I got this idea. This is what I'm doing with soil. You know, whether it's new yeah. plants, whatever. It's you're always learning something new. So I'm actually building. I'm finishing building my compost tea brewer, and I uh, just got all my sea kelp in and. All sorts of stuff that I'm, I'm applying. I'm I'm building bioinoculants and I'm kind of, I got a new system because I've been using foliars for a few years now, but I'm trying to yeah. add more endophytic like uh, bacterium and fungal matter into my soil directly. So I'm screwing around with some new things and I'll talk about that more as I, I feel a little more intelligent to talk about, you know, some of the things I'm working on, but I'm really big on foliars. I mean, there's, I think foliars is the I, way to go. I really do.
1: You know, I, it's well in a drought, when you have a drought, you have no other options but to go with foliars because the, the rest of the stuff. Well, I use a stabilized urea, um, yeah. the blue row stuff that does buy you buy you time and it feeds it well. So that, that's still a good product. But foliars are so much more expensive on some of the bigger crop fields that I put in, though. <sighs> I mean, yeah. it's significantly more than the granule. That's the one drawback, but it doesn't have the salt. There's a lot of there definitely a lot of pros to it. There's no denying that. Cost would be one of the cons. Yeah, cost is definitely one of the cons, and
2: it's also application, too. How are you going to apply it, right, in a growing crop? So you got to think through the process of that. Um, I think that's right. some sometimes. And people aren't going to get out there with a the backpack sprayer and probably foliars. Although, you know, apple and fruit trees, you know, though, whatever you're planting crab, apple, pears, that's
1: a good option for you all. Yeah. Something high in copper, boron, those type of things. And small kill plots, if you want to, small kill plots, if you want to sweeten them up. I mean, a four gallon backpack sprayer you can spray a quarter of an acre with. So
2: no, no. So have you? I mean, I, I've done the backpack sprayer thing, but have you? Um, you know, for my clients, you know, we're, we're, I'm giving them concoctions now in their food plot regimes. You know, based on their soil types and like. So I'll get their I'll get their uh, their soil back from Logan Labs, and I'll look at it, and I'll give them recommendations on what to amend. How you know how I would go about it. I got long-term and short-term options for them, and then we put we get. I like to get on a foliar routine, and I'm starting to get people like recognizing, oh, this is good because once you fix, once you fix, like I work. So my property is long-term property, so I started with the geology. I went back and put, you know, long-term non-soluble nutrients in there, added rock dust, all sorts of stuff, right, to build my base, and then I, I got my plant cycle going, so my sequencing, and then kind of once that's set. You know, it just kind of takes over. You don't really need to do too much to it. And then the foliars is kind of the complementary piece of it where you know where you're weak. So you could take plant sap analysis, tissue analysis, whatever you want to call it. I have a little simple thing called the refractometer. It's a bricks analysis. I look at it, I squeeze my kids and I go out there, it's a science project for my kids. And I look at the sucrose levels and I can tell some deficiencies of plants just looking at them. So I've gotten a little smarter on plants over the years, but kind of the sprays, it's just knowing what you're deficient in your localized area. And a lot of it's the micros. I'm just, just applying micros. So, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty basic. Um, I think, I think the plan is with the compost teas that I'm you know applying, it's, it's basically for 250 gallons thereabouts, my expense is right around, I wanna say right around $70 a treatment. So three treatments a year is $210. I'm gonna cut back because I'm gonna do some stuff a little more natural. So uh, you could just really use uh, you know compost in those areas, commoner would be probably yep. your best option. And if you don't want to disturb the soil, instead of just putting cow manure out there, this is a way to apply cow manure and you can apply it over and over again. And that's cheap. Just go to your local, you needed something to aerate it. So you just got to buy an aerator. They're about 80, 90 bucks, uh, depending on the size. You know, I think, I think I paid, I built an aerating unit that cost me like $30 and basically just pump air to it. I got tea bags. You can go buy, uh, bags. Um, I bought them from a, a company who builds them, but you can just buy it like strainer bags, throw some compost in a bin, and then let the air kind of run through it. And basically you just have a, a let-off valve and you just spill it out on the ground and you can just kind of run back and forth. Or you can put it in a sprayer, spray it on your crops. I mean, that's really, I mean, you want to talk about
1: cheap yep. way to apply compost. That's the cheapest way to do it. Um, yeah, that's a nice, nice system. Again, um, to to bring it up to scale on some of the bigger things would be a, be the issue to spray it on, on at scale. But for kill plots and for small and on your own property, and my buddy's doing it right now in his garden. His garden looks phenomenal. He adds chicken manure as well. He's got oh, chickens, yeah, in his tea, so it's a yeah. My, my I just add, nice I
2: add I can tell everyone I, what I'm adding. I'm adding humic acid, hydro hydrolyzed fish, <laughs> and sea kelp, and Manure from the local farm. That That's basically my, my mixture. I got a couple other little things in there, but that's that's pretty much my mixture. And like I said, I think I'm at 70 bucks. Oh, molasses. I had uh, some molasses, oh, yeah. and you can get molasses for cheap. Actually, you could just do molasses and compost. I'd probably recommend that. That's a good option for yeah. people.
1: Yeah, because the molasses will uh, putrefy.
2: Yeah, putrefy gives us it gives an opportunity for the microbes to have kind of a, a source that's kind of sugar it. It does really well.
1: I, I guess it's a it's a it's a it's a food source. Look at it that way. Um, Please so, tell me you're not you're not distilling it and getting your deer drunk. Is that what you're doing, John? Well, Let's there, just be honest. There, there, turn- there is
2: an option for that, by the way. You can you you
1: can. <laughs> so you no know, wonder you get the big bucks every year. They're tipsy. Well,
2: yeah. So I mean, you know, I don't know. We we haven't talked about it on this podcast, but you know, getting your deer. I, you know what I saw the other day? It really just was just baffling to me. I saw a guy and I don't I, I just couldn't believe this. He's got and I, I don't even want to comment on where I saw this, whatever. But he has a, a, a farm and he's taken out all his grapes on the farm, and yep. and they've been in place for years and, years and years and I understand they want to put a food plot in. There's you know you know there's a opportunity to have more you know biomass. I, I I get that, but you have this great resource. Grapes and you're ripping them all out and you're ripping them up this time of year and yeah. all you got to do is re-trellis them, build a different trellis style, you know, shack them up higher. It's great screening. All you got to do is little agroforestry. So put some clover, alfalfa down the layout alleyways and you can have the same system and you have a fruit integrated into it. I don't know what type yeah. of grapes were in there, but I just saw that and it just made me literally sick. The time it takes to grow grapes like that is, yeah, oh especially like a late season grape. And one of my buddy owns a winery and him and I were listening to a podcast and uh, yeah, they're talking about integrating goats into vineyards and really interesting uh, some of the studies they're, they're doing with, with that type of stuff and how they prune the, 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 grapes and, you know, it was pretty, pretty interesting. So I don't know, off-topic stuff, but some things just baffle me with people. Like, it's just a simple opportunity yeah. that you just literally I, – I would recommend if anybody wants a late-season grape on their property, oh, that's an awesome option. Uh, they'll stay oh, on yeah. the vine. Like, it, I've had them on the vine into December. You know, that's a little extreme, yeah. but November? Yeah, sure, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I like the wild grapevine a lot. That's <laughs> why I like the dead snags that you were talking about earlier, the birds perching them, droppings, the seeds are in their droppings – Daylight. I mean, it's a microcosm. Of what you try to do by daylighting a woods, right? Yeah. The dead ashes get some daylight. It's a perch for birds. The droppings contain the grape seeds. Sunlight hits those. They come up the trees really well, you know. And and deer like eating grape leaves and and the vines and stuff and good mock grapes.
2: Yeah, I mean, my my my. I think one of my most uh, preferential food sources at some point in time is wild grape and uh, choke cherry. I think they hammer yeah. those, and so you know it's 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 one of those most unconsidered plants on the landscape at this point, at least on a lot of properties. The wild
1: turkeys know. really like it too. The wild turkeys really go after grapes, especially the wild grapes that when they'll hold, you know, they don't fall off like a normal grape, and yeah. then they freeze, and they're great late season emergency food for turkeys. I've seen them go crazy over grapes um, when they find them late in the year, like in the wintertime. So, hey, what do you say we talk about uh, the incident I had with the food plot? Yeah, yeah uh, let's, let's um, get yeah, let's get into people will find yep. this interesting. Yep, absolutely. Go ahead. So a client of mine has an uh, egg field, butts up to a woods. We leased part of the egg field to a farmer. Um, I staked it off with uh, – I took the farmer there, showed it to him. Nice guy. He completely understood. Staked it off, flagged it off. He took the co-op, the agronomist from the co-op out, showed him where it was, we also had it on Onyx, showed on the map. I go out there to, to uh, look after, they put, and they're putting beans. They're putting soybeans in their um, portion of the field. So the part that's blocked off for me, I'm going to put a variety of stuff in. Sorghum screen, um, clover up close, and I'm going to have some strips of, of a variety of different stuff. So I see all the weeds where I'm going to plant are dead. And I knew right away we've got a problem. They sprayed the, the guy blew it. He sprayed his chemicals on So get a hold of the co-op, and this is what they sent me that was applied. Now, when guys are putting in food plots and we plant beans or we put corn or sorghum, and you drive by the farmer's plots where there's not a weed in the field, the soybeans are tall and green and look beautiful, corn is almost blue, it's so green from the nitrogen, we have to keep in mind that those guys are side-dressing, When they're planting, they're side-dressing nitrogen right down um, or a starter fertilizer by the beans, no nitrogen for them. And then they're spraying. And here's what the co op sent me. So what happened is this, when I've got the, in front of me, I've got the data sheet from it. It was sprayed at 9 o'clock at night by a guy with a pickup sprayer, which tells you that was a temporary employee or a employee that works a full-time job. And just like everywhere else, it's hard to find people to work right now. They got got, uh, this guy. In a pickup sprayer at nine at night, sprayed off where he shouldn't have. And this is what goes on with just one acre of beans Roundup Power Max 3 herbicide, 30 ounces per acre. Boundary, which is a cocktail of chemicals. Boundary 65 EC, 1.6 pints per acre. Sulfentrazone, four liters. Shredder, which is a cocktail of other chemicals. Uh, with 2,4-D in it at 0. 0.66 points per acre, class act flex, compadre, and then the water. That's on one. So you wonder why their fields are so clean. And that's just, that's just the first application. You know, there's additional applications later on. So it put me in a pinch because there was no way I was going to get anything to grow in there but soybeans. Additionally, it would be off-label, if I plant it in there, the, all those are are labeled for, for soybeans only. So long conversation with the co-op about it, and, and that place just isn't going to be able to be planted this year. Um, I, what I'll do is I'll put in late beans uh, so that when those beans are turning brown, you know, my beans will be green and coming up. They'll get hammered hard right away, but it, it'll still be some shot opportunities for client.
2: Well, you, you won't be able to put your screen in, obviously, at that point, right? Because that was one of the things
1: you were talking <laughs> no, about. No, no. No, screen's not going in this year, yeah. <laughs> well. And uh, I'm switching my screens uh, to uh, I'm really uh, getting into Miscanthus. And oh. I'm using it for other stuff. And I'll tell you why. I love Miscanthus. You know what? You, you do?
2: I do. I do. And I, I have to. So so many people that listen to this are like, I love that you're the know mo- natural. You talked about this and that. And I, I have been. But I,
1: I love it. I absolutely love it. I do too. And I'll tell you why. So there's a couple of things I noticed about it. It gets as thick as pine trees, as conifers. Um, But where a conifer gets to that perfect 12, you know, 8 to 12, 15-foot height, and then there's a window of time that they're ideal, then the lower branches start to go, plus they get too tall and they start to shade out on the downside. Where miscanthus gets to 12 to 15 feet and stops right there, you have a perfect block a perfect screen and you can use it in a group for bedding like integrate it into your switchgrass to give more structure into your switchgrass you just you can't beat this stuff i'm I'm really getting more excited the more i use it the more i like it and the more places i find that you can put it into um it's really a, a decent product for wildlife management uh, for pheasant I, for I, turkey Yep. and for whitetail. Not, don't look at it as just a screen. It works really good for bedding within bedding. Four years ago on a client, I saw
2: him plant Miscanthus and I was you know, not considering it as a good option, but he had planted it for a screen and there was bedding all around it, right? So that like, I was like, okay, you know, the structure, the height, you know, how it develops, it rings. So it creates, now if anybody plants it, one thing to consider is it, 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 it grows, right? Um, it it basically creates a ring and it expands. And then over time, you'll get this like large six, seven foot ring, basically the plant as it continues to kind of outgrow itself. So the spacing is critical in those scenarios. So think about spacing. The other thing I wanted to kind of mention with
1: Miscanthus is the fact that it handles snow load. Unbelievable. Todd. um, Yes. It's the only thing standing there when the deep snows come that I'm glad you brought that point up. This is one of the points that I wanted to bring up. It stands there in the snow. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was I it doesn't grow in zone four. That so you folks in Canada, you know, kind of the northern territories of the U.S. You're gonna you're gonna struggle to to get it to grow. I think it goes down to zone five. Now maybe with the climate shift, you guys will be good in a couple of years. But right, right now, I think you're in trouble trying to apply it. But you know, if it, if you if you've done it and it works, great. They use it around my area for biomass production. Uh, they uh, they yeah. they've they've got farms all over the place where, where they do that. They do the same thing with willows around here. Uh, way better than willows. Uh, the structure, the density. I use oh. willows for years. It's willows is a is a complementary, a woody structure complementary. What I like about those two things is you think about the density of the plants. You're building a living fence. The reason I like willows, it's a living fence that deer can't get through if you if you make it tight enough. Miscanthus grass, they will go through it. I've seen them go through it time and time again. I've, I've tried to use it as a blockade. It They will go through it. So yeah. you, if you staggered it, though, and I I, I don't typically stagger it, but if you staggered enough and there were three rows of it, they might not go through it. I, I'm not 100% sure of that. I don't know if you've got an experience with using it as kind of a
1: wall. No, I haven't tried that. Um, uh, and if I was going to do that, I'd just run snow fence in between two rows oh, or, yeah. or three. You know, yeah. <laughs> the same thing. yeah, I, um, I agree. The, uh, yeah, it's a, so it's a good. It stands up, good cover. And here's the thing, in these drought conditions, the stuff that I put in this year, it's all up with a switchgrass cooked off because you put that rut a little bit deeper in the ground, the rhizome a little bit deeper in the ground, so there's some coolness there. And that stuff is up, you know, a couple feet its first year, week. Um, but by next year, I know it'll be, it'll be really nice where the switchgrass is gonna, because of the drought, is just gonna be coming in next year um, that it would be of any significance. So next year I'm gonna go a lot more a lot more of that because I just I don't know if it's going to be a drought or not, and I can't take the risk on on uh, the switch cooking off and and giving me all the fits that it's giving me and all the extra mowings and stuff that it's that it's taking. So um, I'm gonna I need to build some screens and stuff, and they're gonna be they're gonna be miscanthus. Okay,
2: and I'm not against that at this point. And sorry for all you haters out there that think that we're bad because you know we're suggesting that plant that's the reality of it at this point. And you know, there are many yeah. options for it across the, you know, a lot of these, and we talked about the RC big rock. I mean, that's that's modified. So we talked yeah. about modified plants. I mean, they're, they're across your landscape, deal with it. It's the reality. You, you question the harm of it. it. You know, plant a non-native plant and plant five native plants adjacent to it, okay? There's benefits to all these. I mentioned this recently on another podcast is that there's been studies on on bees. And most of the bees that we have in our areas are not native to our areas. So let's keep that in mind. But the importance of bees on landscape are critical. And uh, one thing in this study, and this is generic, right? Some specific bees have specific demands. Same thing with wasps. Certain species of plants, they have preferences. But in general, if they take the population of bees and there's 700 different species, I believe. I could be wrong on that number. Large number of species of bees, okay? And in, in general, uh, there is no preference. It's 50-50 from native to non-native plants. So just a statistic, something to throw out there. You can fact check me on that because I looked through my resources a couple times. Uh, I just want to bring that up as, a, as, as an additional fact to consider. So, you know, not, non-native plants aren't always a bad thing. And I want to make sure that people understand that there's a balance of this native and non-native. Um, and one of the worlds that I, I kind of grow circles in is uh, a lot of non-native plants are used, and they're used for good reason, especially um, sp- for mineral accumulation. And that, that'll be for a podcast at a later date. But I, I just want to say in general, you know, I'm not necessarily promoting non-native plants. I just want to just let everyone know that there are some benefits, and you have to investigate those. It's the question of, does the plant get out of sorts and out of control? And that's where, you know, people start to put their nose up in the air and say, well, then, you know, what are we doing here? And, uh, you know, I, I can I can deal with that, right? Um, and some of the grasses are, have been the killers over the years. I just pulled Johnson yeah. grass out of my, one of my food plots, and I about crapped myself because I didn't have Johnson grass in my property. Now I do. so. Yeah. You know, things
1: happen. Yeah, that that's the big ones. So I try to stay as native as possible, but I mean, there's reed canary and Johnson grass everywhere, and there's uh, a, a, a lot of people that say it. Their their house, just their landscape around their house is that's where a lot of the invasives come from. They escape out of landscaping. So, um, but uh, stay native, and and, uh, and but where you can't and you have to adapt, that's okay.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's. I agree with you. All right, man. Anything else that's on your mind? I just. It was. We had. It was. I mean, we had one little agenda topic, but it was kind of nice to just talk. I love. I love some of the stuff that you get into and things you think through. A couple new things here
1: this week. Yeah, there's always something going on. No, I'm just uh, gearing up for. uh, Got a bit. I got. I've got more work than I can think of to do right now. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. A lot of cutting. A lot of cutting. A lot of fall planting. Just keep giving her heck you know I, I really it's enjoyable and i i just absolutely love converting property over and seeing the looks on people's faces and seeing when the aha moment comes and they work so uh um uh, yeah just looking forward to wrapping up the rest of the season here yeah we, we got have, august it, and september yeah it'll be august here before and you september. know it <laughs> no
2: yeah and i think yeah. i think august is probably one of the better months to cut it's one of my favorite months to cut in
1: yeah yeah, you can't find a bad month, really.
2: No, no, but I, I, I kind of like August because I'm putting food on the ground. I just, I just saved 15 trees. I counted them before I left. I said I have 15 more to drop here in the next three weeks, and I, I go in and cut two down. I go back a couple of days later, cut two more. This is my own property. Just keep, feed, yeah. just keep feeding the beast. You know, that's that's my yeah. strategy.
1: Yeah, I hinged all last week. Significant amounts of a property. Um, just I was feathering an edge and daylighting a woods, so oh. uh, major well, improvement. Really built, cool built. A, a woods that hasn't been logged in forever. Huge veneer grade, giant black cherry and giant oak, and uh, just a, a really beautiful woods that's about to be too old if we don't do something here. So,
2: well, I'm telling you, I'm not cutting a single black cherry. I mean, the markets are down big time. No. I am not cutting. I'm not cutting any black cherry. That is one of my favorite. No, I
1: don't yeah go ahead what are you gonna say on here no i'm with you i i never cut a black tree. those are high value wildlife trees high high value high, trees. high high
2: there's like everyone's like well what do you choose i said well oaks yeah i love oaks i said but the cherry family of trees that's where i'm at and that's i've been that way for for eons and everyone's like nobody's talking about that in the wildlife world i'm like well then you don't pay attention to what the deer consume yeah. deer will consume a black cherry sapling dollars over donuts over an oak sapling in my particular area and I, i've seen it on multiple properties and so it's i don't know you know maybe maybe i'm just maybe i'm lying to
1: myself maybe that isn't true but it sure seems like it when i observe well the cherries are so highly attractive they don't even around here you rarely see one that makes it to maturity a, a cher, the cherry itself the fruit
2: yeah, so wait. Let me ask you another question, real quick, Todd. Um, what about people? And this is something that that I'm going to work on here over the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm working on a couple new things, new concept for food plots, and um, but this is in adjacent to food plots, so. Uh, I create these brown matter areas. So I'm taking leaf litter and materials and I'm building these kind of brown matter areas. I'm I'm basically building compost adjacent to my food plots and I'm releasing them out in the winter months. And it just adds a little more material. But one thing, a part of that was because I got all this fencing, I'm doing these exclusion areas and I talked to this guy. uh, I'm trying to think of his name. I want to have him on the podcast. I won't mention his name at this point. I I know his name right now, but um, he's building these kind of little native areas across his property. He's an ex-forester, super smart guy, and basically just taking native seeds and throwing them in in these little banks. And, uh, you know, just kind of, he's kind of concealing them off with these kind of, you know, big fenced in areas. When I say big, it's like 20, uh, 20 yards by 20 yards. So they're pretty big. And um, he's just creating yep. these exclusion cages. And I just feel like if you're trying to promote plants and pockets and you can do four or five of those per acre. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you know, talking yep. about opportunities to create kind of diverse environments in your landscape. What a great concept, you know?
1: Oh, totally agree. Yep. Relatively simple. I bought uh, an acre worth of tree seed, shrub seeds this year. Not tree, just shrub seeds. And, the, you know, it's a drought, so they're still sitting on the shelf. I think I'm going to fall plant them. But... The deer, you know, when they come up, the deer just go into the attack mode and then you've got squirrels, rabbits, everything, you know, that are, are after the seed. So I'm definitely, when I lay those out, they'll definitely be exclusion cages, very similar to that, just to get them up a little bit and then it, it'll take off. Yeah, I
2: think it's a three-year rotation cycle. It's the same way that I cut timber. That's how I cut timber. That's the exact same principle as how I cut timber. One of the things I want to mention is, and I'm just we're just talking, but one of the things I want to mention is some of the strategies that are mainstream that are out there that you're watching on YouTube, and they're like put a bedding in an area here, and the guy is recommending it. I don't know what he's what his experience has been with cutting, but the decision making in the cutting, we have talked about building walls of cover and segregation and compartmentalizing deer, but within those areas, it's thinking how you manage, you know, that kind of timber, and you could have an economic kind of perspective. You could have a wildlife perspective. We talked about a couple species here. You, you could just have a diverse, you know. I like diversity, so I want a lot of variety. And those are kind of like the three major kind of, uh, I guess I'll, I'll say dogmas of thinking through kind of woodlot design and layout and wildlife benefit. And it's it's really kind of critical thinking about those concepts. And I guess I'll introduce some of those concepts maybe over the next couple of years of you know how I do stuff and what works and what I what I've seen fail, I guess and you know, I, I can't say a lot of consultants, and, and Todd, I know you and I are pretty sharp guys at, at times. We think through these things, but I think it's really diagnosing down to the foot level. And I think that's the difference between guys that really know what they're doing. They're looking at their properties, you know, down and, and it, it's scalable, you know, maybe too big, but you're, I'm looking at my property down to increments of a foot rather than, you know, acres, you know, and, and I have a smaller property. If I had 200 acres, I'd I'd probably be at the acre level, but you know, uh, I think everybody's different, but if you get to the foot level, I think you're doing something a little bit different. That makes sense. Yeah.
1: yeah I, t- I totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree.
2: All right, man. Anything else? Sorry. I just, I nope. just, just, we're wanted... good. All I'll right. save
1: some, save some stuff for next time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to give all our secrets away. All right, man. I uh, appreciate yeah. the time with you and I know you're doing well. That's important to me and I can't wait to, get back on this we'll have you on probably again in the next month or so just before hunting season
1: sounds good all right Talk great to you hearing you. from me again you take too. care See thank you maximize your hunt is a production of whitetail landscapes for more information on how john teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt check out WhitetailLandscapes.com.